We're thankful to be here with you this morning, and my prayer this week has been that God's Word would change your heart and your life. You know, I began to think this week about someone who could not celebrate Resurrection Sunday. How sad that would be not to know that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. And listen to me, not just that, but He lives to change our life. And because of the resurrected Christ, hear me closely if you don't hear anything else, this man's life has been evidently changed because of the resurrection and the power of Jesus in my life. Totally changed my plans. I had one course in my life that I was going to go, and God wrecked my plans. Praise be to His name. And put me somewhere that I never dreamed I would be, and that is in the ministry. And I can't tell you what the power of the resurrection has meant to my life personally. Now, does that prove everything? Well, no, not to you it doesn't, but it certainly does to me. Now, let me say, a famous preacher told a story, and I want to share it with you this morning. He said, out in the Sahara Desert, in the great tundra and in the edge of the forest, he said there was a spider And the spider began looking around one day and he wanted to be the most powerful thing there was. And he picked out the biggest, meanest thing there was and it was a big lion. And he said, I'm going to capture that lion and I'm going to show him that I am the biggest and the baddest out here. So one night, the lion went in the cave. So the spider, as big as he was, gathered as many spiders with him. They went and they wrapped a weaved web so well crafted around this animal and they worked tirelessly all night long until they had woven and woven until they figured they were completely finished. And then to seal the deal, they went in front of the door and they made another perfect, beautiful web. And they said this, there is no way that that lion will ever get out of that web. Nothing has escaped our web. Well, as you well could guess, daylight came and the old lion stretched and moved and as he moved his legs, the webs began to break and he stretched his head back and let a big yawn and every web on him cracked loose. The lion stood up and walked right straight out the door and never paid one bit of attention to the spider web and the spider stood back in amazement. What has happened? And then the preacher said this, the same thing is true about our Lord Jesus. That web might have held a fly or a moth or a mosquito, but dear friend, the web couldn't hold the lion. And may I say to you, death might keep down a normal man, but death did not keep down Jesus. It could not hold him. It could not hold him. He rose from the dead. So this morning, I want to share with you a message about why the death could not hold Christ, why he must be raised. By the way, this is Karen and I's picture. We both traveled to Israel. We've both been in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, the garden, and we both saw that he wasn't there. There's a big sign in there. He is not here. He is risen. But this is the tomb. So when we think about Acts chapter 2, you can either find it in God's Word this morning or I'll read it to you from the screen, but listen to what Peter, a man whose life was totally transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, had to say on the first Pentecost Sunday. 
He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Now stop. Put yourself back in these readers' positions. Fifty days prior to this being spoken, there was a man named Jesus who was put on a cross and butchered. And all of Jerusalem saw him, and they know everything that happened. He was taken off the cross. He was put in a grave. The Roman soldiers guarded the grave, put a wax seal around it. And everybody in Jerusalem knew this because Golgotha was at one of the major gates where they crucified people. It was one of the major intersections in Jerusalem. And he hung there on the middle cross, taking the place of a man named Bar-Abbas. You know what Bar-Abbas means? Bar means son and Abba means father. He took the place of a man called the son of the father. Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He would have fit in well with Antifa today. He was a rat. And when the people said, what do you want us to do with Jesus? Pilate asked, they said, crucify him, crucify him. He said, well, I find no guilt. You want me to turn him loose? And they said, yes, turn him loose. Uh, You crucify him. We want Barabbas turned loose. We want the real son of the father turned loose. What an exchange. How many people today trade the Savior, the Son of God, the real Son of God for an imposter? How many people live their life today for a lie? They live their life for wealth or fame or money or a job or a position or a relationship only to get to the end of their life and close their eyes in death and realize that they have spent their entire life climbing the ladder of success to shut their eyes and realize it was leaned against the wrong wall. And these people who were crying for the Son of the Father realized that Jesus Himself, the one they crucified and put in the grave, death could not hold Him. Now you listen to me closely. If Christianity would have ever been silenced, if anybody could have ever proven that the resurrection wasn't true, right there is when they could have proven it. Because Christianity would have had no foothold had they produced one bit of evidence that Christ's body was there. The grave clothes were there. His body was out of the grave clothes. They were still wrapped fully intact. There were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, more than 500 at one time. Now, are you listening to me? That is a lot of evidence. As a matter of fact, I had some experience in court If you had one eyewitness testimony, that was almost slam-shut evidence. If you had two, you could pretty much guess that the case was closed. My dear friend, when you have 500 at one time, I don't know about you, that's quite a bit of evidence. And not just eyewitness evidence, but the whole town saw it. And even the religious leaders, and many of them came to faith in Christ. Those who nailed Him on the cross later bowed the knee to Jesus. My point is... Peter said this man was attested by God. That word attested means that he was put out on public display for everyone to try. He was was attested. 
In other words, you saw him with your own eyes. And what did you see? Look at what Peter says. You saw the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. Now, when Jesus came on this earth and proclaimed to be God in the flesh, he did miracles that no one else would do. The Old Testament foretold that Christ himself would control three realms. He would control the natural realm, which would be the earth, the sky, the water. He would control the spiritual realm, which you and I can't see, but is as real as the physical realm. And he would also control death. And when Christ came in his life, he controlled those three realms and defeated everyone. He made the water stop. He performed miracles. He, he rose. He caused people to be raised from the dead. And he controlled the spiritual world by casting out demons and other supernatural beings. Christ Jesus did that. And listen to what Peter said. You know this. Now, you have to go back 2,000 years and put yourself 50 days after the cross and listen to this man standing there with a 1,000 people. You know this. And not one of them says a word because they knew it. Which God performed through him in your midst. You saw it. Just as you yourselves know. Not only did you see, but you know it happened. By the way, there was a man here whose name was Lazarus. Lazarus was the one who caused the big stir up on Palm Sunday when there were hundreds and thousands, possibly million people in Jerusalem. Lazarus. Who was Lazarus? Well, he was a man that had been in Horn Funeral Home for over three days. And they had taken him out of horn to sunset and buried him. And Jesus went to the grave. Are y'all listening? You can't deny this. He was there. And Jesus walked up to the grave and shouted out with a loud, a loud voice. I won't do it to you this morning. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. By the way, I told the early service that in that passage... It says that Jesus wept before he did that. Now, please, if you go to Trinity Community Church, read your Bible. Why did Jesus weep? He did not weep because he felt sorry for Lazarus. He did not weep because he was crying for Mary. I know that makes good preaching, and it makes us think nice things about Jesus, but let's be fair to the text. Do you know why Jesus wept? He wept because people did not think that he could raise someone from the dead. You read it. That's why he wept. It broke his heart that there was unbelief. And this is what he said to them. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you not believe this? And when no one standing around believed it, you know, even Mary, well, Lord, we know that he'll be raised in the last day. Jesus, oh, no, 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 get out of the way. I'm going to show you just a little inkling of my power. And what did he do? He stepped back and said, Lazarus, Come forth. And as one old preacher used to say, he specified the name Lazarus because if he had appointed to the graveyard and said, Come forth, every dead body in it would have got up. And I want you to know something this morning, whether you're here with us in person or whether you're watching online, there's going to be a day when Jesus himself speaks. Hear me closely. Every 
human being who's ever lived in their life will rise. Saved and unsaved alike. And not only will they rise, but they will be given a resurrection body. You will have a resurrection body throughout all eternity. You will either be in one state or the other. You'll either be in the state of eternal life, living with eternal life, or you will be in the state of eternal death, and you will never be able to die. And all of that is going to depend solely and completely on what you do with Jesus and your sin. Now, listen to me. According to God's Word, you have no C. It's either A or B. You either know Christ as your Savior and you have eternal life and you'll receive a resurrected body fit for eternal life or you'll reject Christ as your Savior and you'll receive a body fit for eternal damnation. Not annihilation. Not just being burned up. You will have a body fitted for eternal suffering. And that's God's Word, by the way. There's no way around it. If anybody tells you any different, they are not telling you what God says in His Word. They're telling you their opinion. Jesus steps forth and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the grave. You know why he could say that? Because he was God. And he was a God who had the power over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, every one of us feel the sting of death, don't we? You don't believe me, just look in the mirror. You can, you can see it. The gray comes out. The wrinkles come. You can't lose weight like you used to. We're, we're all getting older. And death has a sting on every one of us, but not on our Savior. He overcame death and the grave. And Peter said, And I want you to know something, dear friend. That's what happened. You know this. Now look what he goes on to say. I'm going to pick back up. Miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. And you put him to death. But God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death. You all read with me out loud God's holy word. Because it was impossible. Did you you read that? It was impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible! What, What is impossible? Let me share one thing that's impossible for Jesus to be dead forever. (laughs) Could not happen. It was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Why was it impossible for death to hold him? Because he is the resurrection and the life. So that leads me to my sermon this morning. Why I want to share today three reasons. Three. Only three. Y'all are getting by with a, a short sermon today. Three reasons the grave could not hold jesus you ready you ready all right reason number one the grave could not hold jesus because his death was a part of god's plan notice carefully as peter says here this man delivered up 
by the predetermined plan. The predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You see, the crucifixion was no accident where God's plan had gone out of control and God in His sovereignty had just forgotten what had happened and where God was just biting His fingernails, worried that now Jesus had been put to death. Oh no! Listen to me. God's Word says that He was the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world were lain. In God's mind and in God's eternal plan, Christ was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This is not what the History Channel reports, by the way. Almighty God had a plan throughout eternity knowing exactly what was going to happen. Listen to the plan. He was going to create man and place him in a garden and give him dominion over the earth that he put him on. Somewhere in this mix, there was a supernatural being that we know of as Lucifer. And Lucifer wanted to be the god of this world that God created. But God entrusted that care and dominion to mankind. Are you all hearing me? In this exchange, when God was entrusting Adam and Eve with dominion of the earth, there was something supernatural that happened that you and I can't fully explain. And that is that this being called Lucifer so hated and became so jealous of mankind that he came down and deceived and made them believe that God was not good and that God was holding something back from them and that they were being tricked by God because God did not want them to be like him. And he concocted a plan where he could get them to disobey God And as a result, death came upon them. And if you read the book of Genesis, when God told Adam, in the day you eat, you will die, and you read Genesis 5 and on and on, you'll see that there are genealogies throughout that book. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. God's word became true. Well, something had to happen. This man who had tricked humanity... This being, this supernatural power who hated man. How in the world would man ever reverse something that now this supernatural being had the power of, of and the power over? You read Hebrews chapter 2. Satan had the power of death. He had the fear of death. And by the way, if you don't think that's rampant today, you just look at what happened in the last year of people. The, the power of death especially people in America, scared to death of death. I want you to hear me this morning. Jesus gave us the power over death. How did He do that? He came in the form of a man, just like Adam. He was the second Adam. This is why Paul uses this analogy. The second Adam came. He was driven into the wilderness. He did everything that was done to man. And there was not one sin found in him. And the second Adam passed the test. And guess what happened to him? Instead of making himself eternal life, he became a man. Took upon our nature. Perfectly sinless. Perfectly holy. And he went to the cross to die in the place 
of an imposter who was the Son of God. You know who that was? That was me. You know who that was? That was you. He died in your place. A redemption only God could do. Only God could do this. And Peter says, you think it was a tragedy? It was the predetermined plan of God. God knew it. God, He ordained it. It was going to happen. And not only was it the predetermined plan, but it was also the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge in Scripture doesn't just mean God knows the future. Listen to me, it means God directed the future. You know, I've been reading, and I've, I told you all, we're going to start a new series in a couple of weeks about America and cultural Marxism. It, it haunts me to my core. What's happening in our nation as we, are, we have been and are being inundated and swept away by cultural Marxism, and most don't even have a clue what it is. But I want you to know something. If Almighty God wants the great ship of America to go down the trail of cultural Marxism, you just remember this. His hand is on the rudder. He's driving the ship of America right exactly where He wants her to go. If God wants to intervene and He wants to use His people, then we won't be silent. We'll speak. We won't go down quiet or easy. We'll tell the truth. We will not fear man. But I want you to know something. Almighty God has a plan. And just as He predetermined the death of Jesus Christ, He's predetermined the destiny of America and every other nation in this world. And I've got good news for you. One day, He's predetermined that the nations are going to bow the knee to Jesus. (laughs) Every nation, every man whether they are in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, will bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. And they'll do it to the glory of God. Am I alone today? The first reason that the grave couldn't hold him is because the grave was a part of God's plan. Don't you ever forget that. Listen to what Peter goes on to say. Truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Four major groups against him. Listen to what Peter says. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Don't read over that too quickly. Everything that happened from the trial of Pilate to the trial of Herod to the crucifixion by the religious leaders, everything spelled out by God's plan. Acts chapter 13, Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia says this, Brethren, son of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. They fulfilled the Scriptures by putting him to death 
Paul goes on to write, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. They did what they chose, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, look at the text, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Folks, that is eyewitness testimony. He didn't hide himself after his resurrection. He came up with them. From Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now His witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The first reason, death couldn't, the grave could not hold Christ because It was part of God's plan. A second reason? Because God is faithful to fulfill His Word. God is faithful to fulfill His Word. When God says He's going to do something, God's people can count the fact that He's going to do it. There are some passages in the book of Acts right after 2.24. Look at what the text says. God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now you all watch what happens here. Peter was standing in Jerusalem. Karen and I have been in this spot. Right where he was standing, there is a tomb that is marked to David, King David back in the Old Testament, the one who wrote the psalm that he's about to quote. And Peter is standing there by David's tomb, And he points to that tomb and says, let me tell you something. I'm going to quote something that was read by, written by this man. And if we open up that box, his bones are going to be in there. He couldn't be writing about himself. He was writing about someone else. Now keep that in mind. Peter says, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Listen to what Peter says now. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Can't y'all see him pointing to it? It's right there. And if we peel the top off of it, his bones are still in it. But look what he says. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer rot. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Wow! God said he was going to do something back in his word, and guess what happened? 
God fulfilled his word faithfully. Listen to what Peter goes on and writes. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. What a passage. Until I make your enemies your footstool. By the way, what is Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father right now? Well, he's praying and making intercession for us. He certainly does. That he's the, he is the sovereign head of the church. And he is also the sovereign ruler of the world. Now, he hasn't extended his sovereignty into active, every detail, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. But he's sovereign over the world. But I want you to notice this. Sit at my right hand until I do what? Make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be made something that he can just prop his feet up on. A footstool. Psalm chapter 2 says the nations of the world plan to throw down God and His anointed. To throw down Jesus and say, we will do away with Him. And what does God say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. When man in their rebellion today shake their fist at God, throw the Bible away, take God out of school, take God out of education, put in all their secular humanism, Marxism, communism, and everything else they have to have to shut God out. God laughs. He laughs at the foolishness of man who think that they can take their little cobwebs, their little spider webs, and hold God down. The foolishness of man. God is faithful to His Word. Well, what does God say to us about His Word? I just wrote down a few things. Number one, God says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Christian, This morning, don't love money. It'll let you down. Love Jesus. He never will. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. I will know never. I will not never. You say, well, that's horrible English. Yeah, but it's great Greek. It's a double negative. I will not never. You come to Christ as your Savior for eternal life. He will never, no never, forsake you. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Joshua 1, 8 and 9, the book of this law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Christians today should saturate their hearts and their minds in God's Word. Can I make a personal 
confession to you. I want you to know something. I was just the average Joe at one time. I couldn't even find the book of Ezekiel. And yet I had placed my faith and my eternal life in the hands of Jesus. I couldn't tell you one thing the Bible said about anything. And somebody actually challenged me one time and said, put your finger on a passage that says you can guarantee that you know that you have eternal life. I could not do it. I could not do it. I knew sports. I knew construction. I could tell you about welding and rods. And I could tell you about metal. I could even quote to you the Virginia law book. Up one side and down the other. Chapter and verse. I couldn't tell you one thing about the Bible. You know what? That convicted me when somebody said, show me where you have eternal life. Show me! And as a Christian, I began to realize, no wonder my spiritual life is so weak. I am trusting in a source that I don't even know. I don't even know it. Listen, listen, folks, how ignorant I was. I went to Piedmont Bible College at 28 years old. And when the professor told me to turn to an Old Testament book, I had to go to the index to find where the book was. That's your pastor. That was me. But let me tell you what happened to me. I prayed that God would take His Word and that I would invest my life in it and I would study it and get to know it. Not just what somebody tells me. I am tired of that. I am tired of hearing and being a sponge. Just what somebody, a parrot. I want to know it for myself. I want to test it. I want to try it. I want to dig in it. And that's why I went as far as I did. As far as I could go. That's why. Because I got challenged in seminary in textual criticism, whether God's Word is true or not. I found contradictions in it. I found things that couldn't be answered. And I started digging and digging and digging. And I wanted to know, can God be trusted? Either He can or He can't. And if God can't be trusted, I don't want this. But I got news for you. God is faithful to His Word. And I can't answer every little detail and question, and neither can anybody else. But God gave us enough in His Word that we can trust Him and believe Him, and we can know 100% certain that Almighty God is faithful to His Word. He is going to do what He says He's going to do. Jesus Himself said, No man takes my life from me, I lay it down and I take it up myself. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Why did He do this? I've already talked about it. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The book of Revelation says He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Why couldn't the grave hold him? Because God is faithful to his word. Some people call Christianity a bloody religion. Listen to me. Christianity is not a religion. Stop saying that. Religion is what you do for God. Catholicism is a religion. Islam is a religion. Christianity is not a religion. You don't do five pillars of Christianity. We have one. What is it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not what we do for Jesus, it's what He did for us. 
He finished the work. And the difference between Christianity and every other religion, listen closely, is the difference between do and done. In religion, you do for God. You do to make God please you. In Christianity, He's done it. We believe in the finished work of Christ. Now folks, that's as simple as I can make it. And as clear as it can be. That's it. God is faithful to His Word. The third reason, that the grave could not hold Him. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Is because it couldn't conquer the lion. The cobweb could not conquer the lion. Listen to what Peter says in verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What happened in the rest of this passage? Peter began to preach. And the text says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced. To the heart. You see that in your Bible? You should circle that word pierced. It has the idea of either a horse and taking its hoof and stomping something to try to cut it open, or it has the idea of a knife that slices right down the middle. This week, Karen was in the kitchen. She was slicing up something, and thankfully, Josh hadn't got a hold of the knives, and it sliced through something, and it went right across her fingers, and she went... <gasps> It pierced her. I ran over and grabbed her hand and thankfully it didn't cut all the way through her skin. But that's what Peter says. When he shared this message, it pierced them to their heart. What pierced them? What pierced them was the fact that they were going to be held guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now hear me closely this morning. You're either in one of two camps. You either receive the benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on your account, or you stand with the other people who nailed Him to the cross. There is no middle ground. It pierced them to the heart, the text says. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And listen to what Peter said. He was very clear. He said, Repent. What does that word mean, repent? It means to change your mind. Listen to what he says. You thought this Jesus of Nazareth was just some man born of an illegitimate woman who came to this earth and did the things he did. You thought this about him and you thought you could kill him. You You better change your mind because this Jesus that you thought was that is now made Lord and Christ. And what are you to do as a result of your repentance? You're to come before all these thousands of people and you are to be baptized to show that you're trusting Him for the repentance of your sins. By the way, when they came forward and they wanted to be baptized, they were making a public statement right there to thousands of people. That Jesus that was on the cross and put in the grave and came out and walked around Jerusalem, He's my Savior! And they went to the baptistry and they proved it. They proved it. And that's what baptism is, by the way. It's proof that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. It doesn't wash away your sin. It's a picture of who you're trusting in and what He did for you. 
Do you realize I was 28 years old, in Bible college, had already written my application, was in classes, and was sitting in a Sunday school class one morning, and a guy talked about he had never been baptized the right way. He went forward as a child, but he had never been baptized since he had been saved. 28 years of my life, I, I went through my life, never realized that. It was like the Holy Spirit shot an arrow out of third heaven right into my heart. And this is what he said. That's you. You went forward when you were seven years old and followed your brother down a church aisle, asked if you wanted to go to heaven and you didn't know what else to say. What's the other option? Hell, no, I'll, go, I'll take heaven. And the next week you were baptized. I went in a wet center, and as Monroe said, I, came out a, I went in a dry center and came out a wet center. Nothing changed in my life. But at 28, my life was radically changed. And I walked forward in the church. It had 500 people in it. 500. Walked up to the pastor as a Piedmont student, and I said, I need to be baptized. He said, what? Later he asked me, how would you get in Piedmont without being baptized? I told him. I need to be baptized. He said, all right, next Sunday. He, everybody said, are you nervous? I, let me tell you something. It was the best thing I ever did in my life. Standing in front of people, I didn't care. And he, he was about right here. I had to help him. I had to do it myself because he couldn't handle me. Man, God changed my life. The resurrection power of Christ in the life. Can I say something to you this morning? Not just that. Jesus living in my life has enabled me not to hate people that I probably should hate. On, on an earthly level, I've had people do things to me that I should hate. And I should really want to get them back and I should be, want to get even. Let me tell you something. Jesus changed me. I've seen Jesus do the same thing for people. Whether they've been abused, sexually. I've seen Jesus change people who have been taken advantage of monetarily. People have ripped them off, embezzled money out of them. I've seen Jesus change people who should have the hardest heart he has totally transformed their life by His grace. And He has changed my life. And I thank Him for that. I hope He's changed your life. If you're here this morning, will you receive God's forgiveness and what Jesus did on the cross? If you're trying to run your life on the fuel of good intentions, education, material wealth, popularity, attendance in some club or church, or some other secular or religious rite, I want you to know something this morning. It won't work. If you're trying to run your life off the success of your job and the size of your portfolio, you are in for disaster. The only thing you should turn your life over to is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because He will change your life. And the only way to do that is to repent on what you think about Jesus. He is not just a man, folks. He is the resurrected God-man who died for your sins and lives to empower your life.